Welcome to The Wild Photographer with Court Whalen. Guys, it is no secret that I love wildlife photography. It is my jam. It is my niche. There's nothing quite as exciting in the world of photography as sitting or standing, somehow being in front of like the big critters of our world, the lions, the bears, the tigers. There's a joke there somewhere. Uh, but really, getting in front of the big stuff, you know, it's 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 a niche type of photography, but it's probably one of the most amazing because even if you're not capturing this stuff, even if you're just there, it's still one of the most incredible sensations, one of the most incredible experiences to be amongst wildlife, watching them go about their natural behavior. And then, of course, photographing them is a huge, huge bonus. It's also huge for the world of conservation. So you probably know I'm a conservation biologist, and I think that being able to showcase and show the world these rare wildlife, rare animals, rare whatever, rare phenomena, rare behaviors is a next step to getting them to fall in love with it and wanting to conserve it. A lot of people will never see a narwhal or a polar bear or a tiger in the wild, but if they can see it uh, virtually or digitally, it's going to get them that closer to a passion for it that closer to understanding why we need to save these things in our natural world. So let's make sure you've got the right camera settings for the best wildlife photography. So there are three settings, three key, three critical settings we're talking about today. We're talking about the right kind of focus, the right kind of drive, and the right aperture. So let's start with the right aperture. So this is a double-edged sword, but in a good way. On one hand, you really want a shallow depth of field to help isolate the subject. Uh, that's a commonality with people photography, model photography, any sort of dominant subject photography. You want to isolate them. Uh, but on the other hand, you want that shallow depth of field because it prioritizes a fast shutter speed. With wildlife photography, we're often limited by light or at very least limited by how fast our shutter speed can be to capture that moving animal or even just freeze the frame from our own hands moving if we're using big long lenses. So yes, you definitely want a shallow depth of field, but it's for two strong reasons. One is to isolate the subject, and the second is to increase that shutter speed to the, the maximum amount it possibly can be given the situation. We're talking about generally using the lowest F number possible for your lens given the focal length. Typically, I never shoot anything bigger or higher than F5.6, but if I'm able, I'd like to shoot at F4 and maybe even F2.8. So that's the range we're talking about, F2.8 to F5.6. Most lenses out there will not let you get down to f2.8. That's for the big, high-end, expensive lenses. Nevertheless, if I could do it, I would. So my advice is always to shoot at the lowest f number you possibly can. Typically, I want to shoot at the shallowest depth of field to get the entire animal in focus, but the foreground and background out of focus. So that's what I'm really keen after. It's not just a number. It's the result that I'm trying to get. So sometimes you do want to shoot a little bit higher. One small hang-up with these small F numbers and these shallow depths of field is that when you're so close to an animal that you're filling the frame with, say, its face or its head, you need to treat each part of that face or its head as its own element of the photo. This means that if you want the eyes, the ears, and nose in focus, you actually need a rather deep depth of field, much contrary to what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, okay, one, one face, one small animal, um, normal F2.8 is going to work. But remember, depth of field has a direct relationship to the proportion of features of the frame. So if that nose is taking up 50% of the frame, those eyes, which are really only a couple inches back from the nose, you know, for the frame's sake, they could be a mile away because it's all in relation to the frame itself. It doesn't have to do with actual physical distance. 
However, in most cases, you know, you're not going to be that close to wildlife. Now, if you're on a safari in Botswana, say, you can get really close to wildlife. If you're on a safari up in Churchill for polar bears, you can get surprisingly close to polar bears in a safe, comfortable, and also safe for the animal situation. But most of the times, you know, if we're up at Brainerd Lake here outside of Boulder, Colorado, and we're photographing moose, we're very much respecting the distance. Um, if you are photographing wolves in Yellowstone, the chance of getting close to those, it's not a thing. You know, you're, you're going to be, you know, hundreds of yards away. Uh, but nevertheless, if your subject is only about 25 to 50% of the frame area, you're pretty good to go at those shallow depth of fields that I mentioned before. So again, one quarter to one half of the entire frame area, you can treat it as normal situations. As soon as you start putting that animal in 50%, 75%, or even the full frame, that's when you have to start worrying about, is my depth of field too shallow to actually get the whole thing in focus that I want to get in? So the next thing is the right kind of drive. This can be called different things in different camera manufacturers, but basically your camera's drive or drive motor is the way that it shoots photos. It's your frame rate, frames per second, sometimes called. You can either shoot at just one individual photo every time you hit the shutter, or you can have it continuous. And sometimes you have different speeds between those two extremes. So what you want to do is you want to set your camera's drive motor for the maximum frame rates when shooting wildlife photography. That way, when you depress the shutter button, it takes a continuous stream of photos, generally anywhere from about four to 10 shots a second, depending on your camera. The more shots per second, really the better. This is particularly important for wildlife photography uh, as even, you know, the, the slightest difference in expression or slightest difference in head tilt or maybe a different lighting that comes, you know, if the sun peaks from behind the clouds for a split second, it can make a huge difference in the ultimate photo you get. Memory is cheap these days, folks. So do not let memory limit yourself by how many photos you can take if you're just trying to conserve memory all the time. Yeah, it's going to eat up memory a lot faster if you're shooting every wildlife shot on burst mode and you're on indeed a wildlife safari and you're photographing thousands of photos a day, maybe you double that, maybe you triple it. But remember, memory is cheap. These actual memories are priceless. Now, this leads me to another important consideration with memory cards. Uh, a really key thing to think about is how much data your card itself can process per second. So you can have the fastest, fanciest camera capable of shooting dozens of shots a second. There are some out there right now, believe it or not, that can shoot 20, 24, 28 shots a second. It's amazing. It's basically like a movie camera. But if your memory card isn't rated for that much data transfer, you're going to get stuck. There's going to be buffering. You're going to have this little blinking red light of death where you can't shoot for a couple seconds because your card is basically processing all those backed up photos and it just can't do it fast enough. Not good for wildlife photography. So the point is, is that you, if you have a camera that's touted for ultra fast frames per second or drive motor or whatever you want to call it, burst mode, you should check your memory card and make sure uh, you have a fast enough card. You want to be looking for your megabytes per second or MB slash S as it's usually written on these small cards. You know, the font isn't very big. Um, typically what you're looking at for your average card out there that's not the cheapest but not the most expensive is somewhere around 90 megabytes a second, maybe 120. Um, these days, that's, that's pretty decent for most cards. It's going to get you most of what you want. However, I do implore you to do the math. You know, go on your computer when you take a photo, figure out, okay, how many megabytes is this photo? A lot of the bigger, better cameras out there these days are shooting at like 20, 30, 40 megabytes per photo. If you do the math and your card only allows you to transfer 90 megabytes a second and you're shooting 45 megabyte photos, that's two per second. So your drive motor can be great. You might be paying a lot of money or your camera, you know, a big part of why your camera is so good is because of that drive motor, but you're limited because your memory card isn't fast enough. 
yeah, you're going to be probably pretty shocked at how expensive the the high quality memory cards are. You know, you can get a pretty basic 64 gig card of, you know, 90 megabytes a second for 40 bucks these days. You might have to quadruple that to get the high end memory cards. But, you know, memory cards, they're, they're here to stay, you know, doing, uh, making a good investment in a good memory card is really, really important. So again, do the math. If you are planning on taking eight shots a second and you have 20 megabyte photos, that's 160 megabytes per second. Make sure you're getting at least that. So in general, shoot on burst mode all the time for wildlife. Those small differences between those 10 shots in in one-tenth of a second intervals, I guarantee you you're going to see one shot that is heads and shoulders above the others. It's just how it goes. So last but not least, the third most critical thing, third most critical camera setting is the right kind of focus. This is where things are getting very interesting these days with advanced mirrorless cameras. Uh, Me, I personally always set my camera focus to single shot, and I put the focus point at the smallest center point possible in the dead middle of the screen. That is, the camera will always use the thing dead middle in the frame to focus on. The camera does not choose where else in the frame it thinks focus should be. Sometimes when you get the camera out of the box, whether it's a point and shoot or a fancy one, uh, the autofocus settings will be very general. So if you've never changed this, this is a really, really important tip for you. The camera will actually choose where in the frame, the top left, the bottom right. You know, it's going to move around to where it thinks those dominant foreground elements are that it should focus on. The thing is, is I don't like letting the camera make that decision because it does not get it right as often as I get it right. If I know that the focus will always be in the dead middle of the frame at that small pinpoint, I'm going to be a lot more reliable and a lot more consistent with my focus getting tack sharp photos each and every time. So what happens on this setting is when I press the shutter button halfway to focus, it locks it in until I press the rest of the way, the other half of the way. During that time, I might be waiting for the animal to reposition a little bit, maybe for it to open its eyes, but more often I'm recomposing the shot because I don't want that animal smack dab in the middle of the frame. It's just a general rule of composition. If you've listened to or read any of my other articles on composition, you always want to off-center a little bit with something starting with the rule of thirds. But that is inherently conflicting to my dead middle of the frame focus point. So again, holding the shutter halfway down, locks in the focus, I recompose the shot, then I push it all the way. That's my ending photo. However, there's another element to this. When I'm photographing a select few species of wildlife and particular behaviors, I'm thinking like flying birds, breaching whales. Those are really the main ones that come to mind. I set my camera to what is known as a follow focus, which means that as I keep the shutter held down halfway, the camera is continuously adjusting focus for whatever is in that focus area. Again, in my case, in that middle of the frame. So I can move my camera all around from left to right to up to down, and whatever is in that focus area instantly becomes in focus as my camera's focus motor seeks to adjust that. So classic examples, again, flying birds, breaching whales. I'm sure you might have your own examples, but the idea is because I do not know where a whale is going to breach on the surface of the water at any given moment, having that shutter held halfway down and allowing the focus to be almost instantaneous as soon as that whale breaches, it allows me to save that split second of time to perhaps get a little bit better shot of the whale, maybe a little bit more of the whale's body out of water, or maybe I can get it just as it's coming out of the water. It's just that split second of time makes a huge difference for certain things. Same goes for birds. The focus changes so fast with a moving bird, you need your camera to instantaneously and continuously focus before each shot because that bird is probably not going to maintain an exact distance from your lens the whole time. It's going to go closer. It's going to go far away. It might be going a diagonal. That follow focus is going to be total game changer. So nowadays, there are some amazing new follow focus technologies coming out with the latest mirrorless cameras. 
I am green with Envy. They will definitely be my next camera purchase because it allows you to focus faster instead of needing to have your focus point in the middle and also necessitating that animal to be in the middle of your shot whenever you shoot using that follow focus method. Um, what it does, the camera's intelligent autofocus actually tracks the moving animal so you can remain relatively still and you, you can keep your photo composed exactly the way you want it because that tracking autofocus is going to move throughout the frame in an extremely accurate way, much more accurate than DSLRs because of they, you know, they don't have that live view they need to revert to. They don't have that mirror that gets in the way of actually perceiving the object. It's much more digital. It's a lot more techie. It's a lot more accurate. And it is definitely the future of wildlife photography. So a way to avoid that issue I just mentioned of, you know, having that animal in the middle of the frame with this follow focus is I do always zoom out a little bit when I'm photographing things on this follow focus. Uh, Canon refers to it as servo. I'm not really sure what Sony, Nikon, Panasonic, Fuji, I, I, it's always some sort of follow focus, but servo for the Canon folks out there. Um, I'm always going to zoom out uh, so I can crop the photo in post on the computer. Because again, rule of thumb, you don't want that animal smacked up in the middle of the frame when you ultimately are done with the photo. It's fine if you take the shot. You can always crop in a little bit. You can off-center it, uh, leave the space in the leading edge, you know, direction it's flying or direction it's pointing. But ultimately, I, I want to keep it a little bit off-center in the end. So yeah, again, these new follow focus technologies are becoming game changers out there. Uh, it's another reason why mirrorless probably is the de definitive future for cameras, especially wildlife photography. But nevertheless, I'm still on a DSLR. Um, I have the Canon 5D Mark IV, which I absolutely love. Um, it has certain advantages over mirrorless, but it isn't quite as progressive with follow focus like I was just talking about. It does have that servo, but it's not going to actually move around the frame as uh, as easily as with the mirrorless. So I've found that my go-to is still to minimize what the camera chooses for me in terms of what I focus and where I focus. I still think I get it right a lot more of the time than the camera. So let's be honest, most wildlife stuff I'm shooting, like 90% of it doesn't really need that follow focus. So even though it's a great thing, uh, lots of stuff I'm photographing, they're not moving a mile a minute. They're not uh, haphazardly, whimsically breaching whales. I kind of know that bear is standing there. It's looking to the right. Yeah, maybe it'll change its direction, but you know, it's not moving real fast. Same thing with tigers and a lot of African safari wildlife. You know, you might be going to Africa thinking, oh, all my shots are going to be cheetahs running across a savanna. Most of the time when you can get a photo, it's relatively sedentary. So the follow focus is a huge bonus, but my technique of that single point center point autofocus is great the vast, vast majority of the time. So folks, I hope this has been really helpful. Now you know the three most important camera settings for amazing wildlife photography. The right aperture, which corresponds to a fast shutter speed, kind of get the best of both worlds there. The right drive mode, so you can capture as many photos as possible in a given moment. And then the right kind of focus, so that you're nailing the shot with perfect tack sharp focus each and every time. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to next time.